And let me encourage you, if you have your copy of God's Word, to go ahead and open that to the passage that Marlon read a little bit ago. Um, That is in Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah 33. By the way, Marlon, that was an excellent job. Good job, buddy. Let me pray for us as we uh, prepare to consider the word of the Lord together. God, we do thank you and praise you for who you are. We thank you for your word and the opportunity that we have to reflect on what you've done in the past and consider what you're promising into the future. God, I pray that over these next few moments you would grant us understanding of your word, of you, of how we should change the way we think, the way we live in light of who you are. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now, as we dive in, I I need to tell you, we don't really have many slides. In fact, that's the only slide you got. So if you're a note taker, I'll try to give you some clues there. There's a big space to fill in. So if you're a drawer, you can draw. If you're a writer, you can write. Um, And we're going to spend most of our time in Jeremiah, but there's one other passage that I want us to think about. But before we get to that, I want to I give you a little bit of insight into movie watching, TV watching insight. If you want to know, if you want the biggest clue there is in Hollywood on how to predict that catastrophe is coming, all you need to do is listen for the two famous words, I promise. I promise it's without fail. We'll be watching something at home and it happened in a show we were watching last night. Even we'll be watching something at home and they're getting up to this big scene and, and there's catastrophe that it's about to happen. In fact, the other day we were watching something and, and, and one of the characters, two characters were there together and one was going to be sent off to a faraway city and the other one was going to have to stay back to try to make everything right. And, and the, the man who was staying back, the, the girl who drove away, she said, I, Will you please promise to be safe? And he said, I I promise. Immediately, we all knew, oh, he's gone. (laughs) This is catastrophe waiting to happen. Mia, that's from uh, Lemony Snicket and the series of unfortunate events. But it's so funny that that Hollywood has this script that if they want you to know that bad things are going to happen, they make a major character promise to save the day only to fail. Or at least what happens on the other side of that is far from what people were expecting. They're almost foreshadowing something to come, something different, something bad. But we all kind of make promises at different times, don't we? I mean, we promise to do some work. We have contracts at work to say, I promise to show up here and there and do what I'm supposed to. Or if you're at home, you might promise to do the trash or take out the dishes as soon as... The video game is done or as soon as this TV show is finished. We promise to and you can fill in the blank. And sometimes we're able to fulfill the promises we make because we limit our commitment to what we're able to do, what we can control. But there are other times when the circumstances don't allow us to fulfill that promise of being as sincere as we might and say, I promise there's no way that it's going to be fulfilled. But what about when God makes a promise? 
What about when God makes a promise? Is he good for it? Is God true to his word? Well, that's what we're really talking about today. The passage that Marlon read is all about a promise that God made to the people of Israel. But I want to take you back. In fact, if you have your Bibles, I want you to flip back all the way back to the first book of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 15. I want to just read a very brief passage there in Genesis chapter 15, because God made a promise to one of Israel's heroes. He made a promise to Abraham. And I want you to consider how exact this promise was. And he, in uh, Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 12, it says, And the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. But they will be afflicted for 400 years. So he's basically telling them, look, this is the land that I gave you. Your people, your descendants, as numerous as the stars, are not going to be here for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the, on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. And they shall come, here, come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God made this promise to Abram. He said, Abram, I promised you this land, but I tell you, your people in the next couple of generations, they're going to go away. And what we find out through the rest of the, of the Old Testament, really for, through the rest of Genesis and into Exodus, is that the people of Israel were in Israel because of a famine. They went back to, into Egypt and they were stuck in Egypt for 400 years, at which time, year, centuries earlier, now God has said you, they're going to be there for a while. I will bring them out. And so if you're, if you're familiar with the, the Exodus story, God called, rose up uh, Moses and he said, Moses, I want you to take my people out of Egypt. So he led them out of Egypt across the Red Sea into the, the, the desert of Sinai, into, toward Mount Sinai, where he entered into a covenant with his people and initiated that sacrificial system. But because of their rebellion, they had to wander in the wilderness for another 40 years until finally... They got to enter the promised land. Finally, God's word was fulfilled. His promise was fulfilled. But over the next several hundred years, the people of Israel went through seasons of faithful living and seasons of rebellious living. They would worship God and then they would get a new king and then they would worship false gods. And after warning, after warning, after warning, the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, eventually the kingdom was divided into two, the north and the south. Eventually the northern kingdom got so rebellious that God, after sending many prophets warning them, he destroyed them and sent them into exile. And then a little over a century later, the southern kingdom of Judah was also sent into exile. And it was during the reign of the kings... And before the exile that various prophets called the people of God to return to the Lord. They were saying, hey, come back, repent of what you're doing. Let's get it right. And one of those prophets was a man named Jeremiah. And he was a priest who served primarily in the south. 
And he had been preaching for years about this coming exile, but to no avail. In fact, the first 29 chapters of his book is all about Judah saying, hey, you guys come back, come back. You got to repent. Let's not do this. In the last several chapters, 34 to the end, Jeremiah talks to all the nations around Judah, all the nations around Israel and, and provides warning for them. But right in the middle of the book is what some commentators call the book of consolation. It's this book of, of comfort, if you will. And in these chapters, God reiterates his commitment to his people and his plan to return them from exile. But the big question is when? When will these things happen? And the book of consolation, it provides a sense of hope through the promises of God amidst the suffering that they were enduring. These weren't empty promises. They were promises of the Lord, promises to return to the land, promises of prosperity, and most importantly, promises of the Messiah, of an anointed one. And some of those promises are contained in the passage that we're considering today. So if you flip back to Jeremiah chapter 33, I should have told you to keep your finger there. Jeremiah 33, let me just read this for us one more time. And it says, starting in verse 14, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. There's the northern and the southern kingdoms. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it is it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And as we think through these verses, I want us to ask a couple of questions. So if you want to in your notes, if you want to ask these questions and kind of pencil through or think through some of the answers with me, we can. The the first question that, that we really need to ask is this is who is making the promise and why does that matter? Who is making the promise and why does that matter? You see, it's clear from this text that Jeremiah says, the days are coming, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord. Now, this is not a a hopeful wish that Jeremiah is presenting. It's a revelation from Yahweh. In our Bibles, if you look in your Bible, you might have the Lord written out in all capital letters. It might be small caps, but it's all capital letters. And in our Bibles, when we read that, we get the Hebrew word Yahweh or Y-H-W-H in, 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 as it would be spelled out in a transliteration of, of Hebrew. We talked before that this is the covenant name that God gave to Moses. And one of the things that God frequently called his people to do was to go back and remember, remember what God has done. And so I think in some ways when, when Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord declares. I made this promise. I will make this happen. He's, it's almost as though he's calling them to go back and think through all of the things that God had already declared. Kids, think about this. When your parents say, I promise that this will happen. You can go back and you can think, oh, yeah, dad said, yes, I promise we'll go to Disneyland. And we went to Disneyland or, or dad made this plan. And we went and went did, did this thing. And mom said this and we did that. So I know that they are trustworthy. It's that very same thing with God. God is calling his people. Hey, remember, I told you that. And didn't I do that? Here's what I'm telling you is going to happen into the future. I think a lot of that remembering was designed to help people be 
super grateful for all that God has done. In fact, Psalm 136 is a beautiful psalm that really is for the people of Israel to get them to remember. Here's what God did. He created everything. Oh, and here's what God did specifically for the people of Israel. And so as Jeremiah utters this promise on behalf of God, he is, in a sense, calling the people to think back to what God has done in the past and look forward in hopeful expectation of what God will do in spite of the problems that they were going to go through, in spite of the challenges. They were going to be exiles in a foreign land, but they were going to be disciplined because of their rebellion, but God was not giving up on them. Have you ever had that experience when you... I know spankings are kind of not kosher these days. They're not very good, but I I, I can tell you I was greatly benefited from many a spanking. But uh, tell me if you've had this situation where, where your parents or moms, dads, if you spanked your kids, obviously, you know, all the books say don't spank in anger. But when you spanked your kids and you held them afterwards to communicate, hey, I'm disciplining you because you deserve punishment, but my love is still there. And it's almost like God is doing the same thing, except to a whole nation of people. He said, I'm going to send you away in exile because you deserve it. But I love you, and I'm going to do this in the future. It's almost as though he's, he's communicating that to them. So Yahweh made the promise, and that matters because he has made multiple promises in the past and has fulfilled them, and they can trust that he will be faithful into the future. But that brings us to a second question, and that question is, what is promised? Let's look back in the text. What is promised? And in verses 15 to 16, it says, In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell Securely, And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And so as I think about this, there, I, it seems like there are two promises that God is making there. One is for a person and the second one is for protection. So let's think about these briefly. The, the person, Jeremiah refers to this person as a righteous branch. But do you guys talk about branches in your family i mean you might look at family trees and think about branches but one of the things that that in hebrew one of the things that in the old testament they do when they refer to a branch it's referring to a descendant so for instance my daughter zoe is a branch of joel and danielle gilbert she is a descendant and my grandchildren and great-grandchildren i am the great-grandchild of eleanor wetmore a branch of her Line. And so one of the things that, that this language of a righteous branch refers to someone who will be a descendant of, in this case, King David. But it's interesting. He uses the word. Notice what he says there. I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And it seems to indicate that this person is a branch will be a descendant of David, a descendant way down the line of David. But as a branch, it will also be on behalf of David. And this branch is just one of the many names that the Old Testament writers used to refer to the Messiah specifically. In fact, one commentator, Don Carson, notes that Jeremiah depicts the coming one or the Messiah. He calls him the good shepherd, the righteous branch, and as David the king, the Lord's servant. You see, Jeremiah wrote many, many years after David was already dead. 
And so this descendant of David will come and he will be regarded as righteous. But what does it mean to be righteous? I mean, we have righteous rulers all the time right now, right? Throughout America's history, haven't we always had righteous presidents and vice presidents and congressional leaders? So the question is, what, is this, what does it mean for this person to be righteous? Well, some of the Bible translations, the dictionaries talk about this. It said, uh, someone who is righteous is without sin and completely good and moral. And it, and it says that only God is righteous in that sense. But righteous also refers to a person who does what is right. And we all try to do what is right from time to time, but ultimately we're going to fail. And then thirdly, a righteous person is a person whose sins are completely forgiven by God. A person who has put his or her faith in Jesus and is, is seen as righteous in his, high, in his eyes. So we know that the third one doesn't exactly apply to this situation because the third one applies to us who've, who've received Jesus' salvation. The second one could refer to this righteous branch as someone who does right things. And, as, and the first definition, as it said, only refers to God. But notice that this, what this righteous branch will do. Not only will he act righteously, but he will govern righteously as well. Jeremiah says that he will execute justice and righteousness in the land for Israel and Judah. And it seems like it's very specific for that part of the world, for that nation, for those people. Now, if we were to think back over all the previous kings and rulers that Israel and Judah had experienced, some might be considered righteous. Most would be considered corrupt. And all of them would be considered sinful. I mean, think about this. Who is the most famous king in Israel's history? Who do you think? Who? David. Yeah, David. He's like the standard bearer. Everybody wanted to be like David. But let's think about this. David, he was good. He, he only worshipped God. He was known as a man after God's own heart. And he did good things so much of his life. And yet, he was messed up. Even though he was a faithful worshiper, he was far from righteous. He committed adultery. He conspired for murder. He took a census that was designed to prop up his ego. And that's just his political career. And then as a husband, he couldn't be content with one wife, so he had to get several. As a father, oh, he was passive aggressive at times and inconsistent with how he raised his children. And that's Israel's standard. Some of the other kings, they raised up altars to false gods. They entered into for, forbidden alliances with foreign nations. They did horrific things to their children. And so Jeremiah is saying this new leader, this righteous branch, this one who's going to come is going to be better even than David. Better than the best that any of those guys could hope to be. He's going to live perfectly and execute justice Without bias and without inconsistently, he will govern honestly. But not only will this person be righteous, there will be a result of protection for the people of Judah and Jerusalem. He says that specifically that Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in security. 
And eventually we'll receive the name, the Lord is our righteousness, or the Lord has provided us with justice. Now keep... Now think about if you in case you're a little bit fuzzy with where Judah is, if if you if you've ever seen a map, and this would have been a great time to have a visual, and I'm sorry I didn't get that done this week. But if you've ever seen a map of Israel, it's kind of long and skinny, and on on uh, this side, from your perspective, there's a lake up top and a lake down on the bottom. Well, one of the things that lake down on the bottom really becomes the dividing line between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And from that lake on the bottom, which is the Dead Sea, all the way out to the Mediterranean Sea and south to the Red Sea is where Judah is. And Jerusalem, their capital, is really close to the top of that. And it's about a little larger than the size of Delaware. Judah, the, the entire nation, was, was just a little larger than our state of Delaware. And keep this in mind for a second. Jer- Jeremiah's audience were residents of that southern part of, Jer- of Judea or Judah and Jerusalem. And at the time he received this prophecy, Jeremiah was locked up in the court of the king in Jerusalem. And and Jerusalem itself was under siege by Nebuchadnezzar, by a foreign army. They were surrounded and there was no hope of escape. And I can imagine that some people would have been quite frustrated by a future hope by Jeremiah saying, hey, I will raise up a branch at some point in time, but you have to go through these 70 years of exile. Jeremiah seems to be giving hope that Jerusalem will not have to fear siege and and Judah will be rescued in years to come way down the line. And then in the next couple of verses, if you look in your Bibles in verses 17 and 18, it says, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. He's basically saying, hey, there will be consistency and there will be peace. So we've seen that God is the one who made these promises And then he promised a person and a protection for his people. But it brings one more question. And that is, how is this promise fulfilled? Because from our standpoint, this promise happened a long, long time ago. This was declared many, many years ago. But before we get to wrestle with the good news, we have to wrestle with history. So let me just remind you what happened. About the time that Jeremiah wrote this, as I said, Jerusalem was under siege. They were going to fall and and a bunch of people were going to be taken from Jerusalem into another nation for 70 years. The town, Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. There was a remnant left there. Eventually, the people, about 70 years later, some people started coming back and they rebuilt the altar on the ruins of where the temple was and they began doing sacrifices again and they began worshiping again. Eventually, they did rebuild the temple. And that temple stood for a couple hundred years until the year 70 A.D. when ultimately it was destroyed. And from 70 A.D. to now, that temple has never been rebuilt. That temple has never been rebuilt. And as far as we can tell, the Jewish sacrificial system has not been active since 70 A.D. So the question I have is, did God lie? Did God break his promise? You see, there's no 
king in Jerusalem. In fact, after the exile, there was never really a king again. They had governors and they had other people. They kept tracking the genealogy. But there was never a king on the throne. And while there may be Levitical priests leading worship today in Jewish synagogues, there are no sacrifices taking place. So did God tell the truth? Is he good for his word? And I think what we have to realize is that God is, has and will fulfill his promise, but not in a way that the people of Israel expected and not a way that we might have looked for. You see, Jesus is the righteous branch. As we're going to read in the next couple of weeks, when we read the genealogies in Matthew and Luke, we re, it reveals that Jesus was, was a descendant of David on both his stepfather's side and his mother's side. He was, he was an heir to the throne of David. And since Jesus is fully God and fu- fully human, he has the earthly heritage of a king and the er- eternal existence of God. He is then the eternal ruler in the line of David, able to sit on the throne. No, he's not on a throne in Jerusalem. He's on a, in the throne room in heaven. And when it comes to the role of priest, the promise stated that Levitical priests would never lack a man who could offer sacrifices. And we saw over the last couple of weeks as we studied Hebrews that Jesus would be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And that order we saw was an order superior to to the Levitical priests. And even the psalmist urged that there would be a new kind of priest in Psalm 110. We also learned in Hebrews that Jesus offered himself as the perfect and eternal sacrifice for our sins. And he is before God and he is God eternally. So God's fulfillment of this promise is this fact that in the throne room of heaven, David's descendants have a king on the throne. And, and as a priest in the order of Melchizedek, he is himself. Jesus Christ is himself that permanent eternal sacrifice before the throne of God. So Jesus is this righteous branch, but what about executing justice and righteousness? In his life, Jesus demonstrated sinless perfection. He showed us how to live. He showed us how we should act if we were perfect. And then on the cross, he executed eternal justice on our behalf. And we like to think about justice by our standards, getting back, getting retribution But ultimately, justice has to be measured by God's standard. And Jesus took the eternal wrath of our sin and paid for it perfectly. God's justice has been satisfied. And as for executing righteousness in the land, Jesus taught us how to live and and in many ways ushered in a kingdom that if we would live it out, there would be justice in all the land, all the lands. He ushered in an upside-down kingdom that extends beyond the borders of Jerusalem and Judah. In fact, 1 Peter 2.5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And in reality, we can see that justice and righteousness are not fully realized yet. We don't live in a nation or in a world that is built right now on justice and righteousness. And yet we, the people of God, as we live that out, we get to bring hope of what is to come. 
So again, did God lie? Is Jesus just a false hope for the people of Israel? I think the answer is no. I think it seems like this promise is fulfilled in two stages. The first stage is when Jesus, in his first coming, the the coming that we are celebrating now with Advent, the coming that we will celebrate in in just about a month with, with Christmas. And the result of his life, death, and resurrection, the commissioning of his people to be on mission, to be people of peace, to be a kingdom of priests to God. And yet the second stage is his second coming when he will fully reign, when he will reestablish his eternal kingdom with his people here. Revelation 21, 1-4 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So let me just close this out by by getting us to think. Jeremiah sought to give hope to the people of Jerusalem and Judah. The initial fulfillment of that hope would come some six hundred years after he spoke it. Jesus didn't come for another six hundred years. But that fulfillment would extend far beyond the people of the land. This truly righteous branch from David offers eternal justice and righteousness for all of us if we will believe, if we will trust him. And as we are gradually transformed to act more righteously, we get to realize the salvation and security that God promised as we live it out in community and in the world. But because God was faithful to fulfill his promises in the past, I think we can look forward with hope to the promises that he will fulfill in the future. So let me challenge us to walk faithfully before him, fully hoping in the promises that he will fulfill because he has been faithful to his word in the past. Let's pray together. God, thank you for being a God who is good for his word. God, you are a God who is, who is able to be trusted. You are a God in whom we hope. Lord, help us to walk faithfully before you as we seek to honor you with every part of our lives, every fiber of our being, in anticipation of your full fulfillment of this promise to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Your promise to us about your righteous branch, Jesus Christ, who will execute justice and righteousness perfectly, bringing peace in the land. Lord, we look forward to that day when Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, will dwell secure. God, we pray that that would come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.